I am in John chapter 16, verse 16 through 33. I'm going to start on a really, really sad note. Um, two in the, in the past month, two students at my alma mater, the University of Houston, have committed suicide by jumping off of the top of the same building. It's a building called Agnes Arnold Hall. Now, that was there when I was there uh, 30 years ago. Um, it, was, it seemed old then. And it was the building that I would, I would go up to the top just to look around because it, it, it wasn't a closed-in building. I don't know if I'm describing this well. I'm not an architect like my brother, but uh, every level was wide open. The rooms were enclosed, obviously, but the, the walkways weren't. So you could walk up to the sixth floor, the top floor, and you could see open air all around. And so I'd go up there and just look around. When my brother came to visit me, I took him up there and so we could get a bird's eye view of the campus. It never even occurred to me back then, oh, this is a place people might want to jump off of if they were down, if they were in despair. That didn't even occur to me. It's not that people in the, the 90s when I was in college didn't sometimes despair of life, but it's become an epidemic, especially among young people. I hope y'all are aware of that and that you're praying. Uh, some of you are because you've, you've seen this in your own family, sad to say. I, I say all this because uh, when the first one of these happened earlier this month, the university put out a statement just offering condolences and uh, canceling classes for that day. And then the, the statement said, here's, here's resources if you're having trouble, if you're struggling with your mental health, here's some uh, numbers you can call. So when this last one happened a couple of days ago, they put out a statement that was almost exactly the same, and people were furious. They said, "What are you? Is that all you're going to do? Just put out the same old statement? Aren't you going to do more?" Uh, I read a, an article or an editorial today in the student newspaper, and they were really criticizing the university. We, we should do more to help people, and their point was we should devote more money to mental health help on campus. And if I was on the board of directors, you could probably talk me into that, but. I just looked at that and I thought, I know there's a lot of anger, but what can a university really do? A university can teach you, a university can train you, a university can give you a certain set of experiences, I'm glad I went there, but what can they do about something like this? What can they really offer? Now, hold that, we'll come back to that. See, we're in this series that I'm calling Origin Story because uh, it's the last things Jesus said before he was arrested, before he went to the cross. He knew his time was limited. He knew this was his last chance. And so the things he said were very important. He was, he was telling his disciples what they needed to know to carry on when he was gone. So in essence, this is the origin of our faith. This is Jesus saying, here's the essence of what it means to represent me in the world, to be a disciple. And, and so often we think a Christian is someone who believes a set of doctrines and follows a list of rules and perform certain rituals. That's, that's what Christianity is, right? It's doctrines, it's rules, it's rituals. But what can that do? I'm not saying those are wrong or, or, or unnecessary. They are. They're all necessary. But if that's all you have, you don't really have the faith. Because according to Scripture, a Christian is not someone who does something. It's someone to whom God has done something. Does that make sense? Being a Christian is not about what you do for God, it's what God does to you, and whether you allow Him to do that or not. A Christian is someone who is in the process of being transformed into the presence, into the image of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's what a Christian is. And the disciples were about 
to experience the worst thing they would ever experience in their whole lives. The next 12 hours to 24 hours would be the darkest time they'd ever experienced. Grief, shame, doubt, fear, all of it. And so Jesus offers them two things in the words we're going to look at tonight that a university can't offer, that a government can't offer, that uh, nobody can offer but Him. And that's joy and peace. Joy and peace. That's the cure for what ails people today. So let's look, starting with verse 16. Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me again. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. That last sentence, I wonder how many times the disciples said that sentence. You get the impression they were always just trying to play, desperately trying to play catch up with Jesus. So let's ask the question, what, what is he talking about when he says, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. You don't, won't see me and then you will see me. Well, the obvious answer is the resurrection. Based on the rest of what he says, he's talking not about his ascending into heaven and then returning someday. That's certainly going to happen, and we look forward to that. But right now, he's talking to his 11 disciples, because Judas is already gone, about, I'm going to die, and you're not going to see me, but then I'll be back. And by the way, the way this is laid out, it, it indicates, I don't know if you picked, this, picked up on this or not, this wasn't a lecture that Jesus was giving. This was a conversation. This took place over a period of time. We saw earlier, Jesus said a few things and then he said, okay, let's go from here. And then he keeps talking. So it, it makes it seem like some of this was at the Last Supper in the upper room. And some of this was as they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem and down through the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there would be times when Jesus would say things and then he'd stop and he'd let them digest. And this is one of those moments because he must have said these words, and then he got quiet, and the disciples start talking among themselves. What does he mean? What is, what is he saying? And it's obvious they're starting to get scared. You can tell by the nature of their questions. What does he mean? A little while he's going to be gone. How long is a little while? Is he going to be gone a day? Is he going to be gone years? So there's an interesting question that brings up for us. How does God respond when we get scared? How does God respond when we feel fear? Notice what Jesus says next. Chapter 19. I'm sorry, verse 19. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask Him. So He said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see Me, and again a little while and you will see Me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So Jesus sees them afraid. And I always find it very comforting that in the Scriptures, when God sees His people afraid, He sends reassurance. He sends comfort. He does not, on the other hand, always tell them what they want to hear. He doesn't always give them all the information they're looking for. But He always says, I'm with you. Trust in me. Or in this case, let me tell you, there's going to be joy after your sorrow. Because when He says, you'll weep, and the world will rejoice, I think what he's talking about is in a few hours when, when Jesus is arrested and then taken before Pilate 
and then condemned by that group of people, and then nailed to a cross. And then when he dies, there's a, there's a significant number of people who will rejoice at that. Jesus refers to that as the world. Remember, the word the world, the term the world, is used in Scripture in a variety of ways. Sometimes it means people, but sometimes it just means everything in this planet that's opposed to God and His will. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The forces of evil are going to rejoice when I die, because they will think they have won a victory. But you will weep, but don't worry, because soon you'll rejoice. Soon your tears will turn to joy. Now, when you were a kid, if your parents tried to help you through a difficult thing by telling you, don't worry, something good is coming after, like say your, your mom was taking you to the doctor, you knew you were going to get a series of shots, but she said, don't worry, we'll get ice cream afterwards. That may not have solved all your problems, but at least it was something you could focus on. And if you really trusted your mom... It helped. Jesus is saying, after the tears, there's going to be joy. And man, he, he, didn't, under, he didn't oversell it, did he, compared to what happens soon. He, he makes another analogy in verse 21. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I like to think about the fact that Jesus was the firstborn of his family and there were several brothers that came after him. So that means in a house like Jesus's, they, you know, the mom didn't go off to a hospital. Childbirth was in the home. Jesus witnessed the birth of little brothers. He was handed a little baby several times as a, as a young boy himself. And said, this is your brother, this is your brother James, this is your brother Jude, this is your brother Simon, and so forth. Jesus saw his mom in pain, but he saw the joy she felt afterwards. Of course, any of us who've been through this process, we can't help but think about our experience. When Carrie was giving birth the first time, I have to admit, I was terrified. In fact, I remember saying out loud to people in the presence of my wife, which is a terrible thing, I wish we lived back in the old days when the men sat outside in the waiting room and handed out cigars. I wouldn't even hand out a cigar. I wouldn't even have to do that. Just, I don't want to be in that room. I was terrified. But, you know, that's the way they do things now. So I had to be there. I remember, uh, you know, my wife uh, is not a big woman and she's never been, uh, I never thought of her as physically strong or tough. And so as soon as the contraction started, as soon as I could see the pain on her face, I was begging the doctor, stop it, you know, make, make it go away. I didn't know what an epidural was, but I heard that took the pain away, so give it to her. Um, and he, he did. Uh, actually, this, you might note this, uh, the second baby, when Will was born, Carrie was like, let me decide. <laughs> when I had the epidural. And she waited much longer and Will came out much faster. So, uh, but anyway, I was so scared, so scared. Um, and, and even with the epidural, nothing about what she went through looked fun at all. Nothing. Not, not once did I say, yeah, I'd kind of like to try that. And yet afterwards, just watching her, I remember, I remember distinctly her, her just staring at her and saying, I just can't stop kissing you. This this little baby, Kaylee, and the, the love that she felt. When Jesus gives his little analogy, when he says she no longer remembers the anguish, he doesn't mean that the pain goes away, that 
I mean, any of you ladies who've given birth, you know that you don't just give birth and then all of a sudden, oh, okay, I'm ready to run a 5K, right? Let's go out shopping. Let's go. No, there's still substantial pain for quite a while. But there's a joy that overwhelms the pain, that overcomes the pain. And it's a lasting joy. The pain is for a little while. The child, Lord willing, lasts the rest of your life. See, that's what Jesus is saying here. Yes, you're going to have sorrow. And this is, this is important for us to understand about the joy of the Lord, the, the joy that God offers. doesn't mean that we never experience sorrow. If you ever are tempted to say to a Christian, you know, you're just, you just don't look very happy to me. You should be a better Christian so you can be happy. That's not biblical. There's nothing unchristlike about a Christian expressing sorrow, expressing pain, expressing grief, expressing worry. But our joy should overcome those things, should last longer, should enable us to rejoice. Well, put it this way. Joy doesn't take away sorrow, but joy is what keeps sorrow from winning and fear and doubt and all those other things. He says, no one will take your joy from you. That's one of the great promises in the Bible. It, 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 again, doesn't mean we're never unhappy, but we know that our unhappiness is always temporary and it can't stop us from also rejoicing. Jesus is saying to them, listen, this tomorrow is going to be terrible, but if you knew what I know, you would have joy in the midst of your sorrow. You would have joy to see what my death is doing for you. Think about it though. The world offers its own versions of joy, doesn't it? The world says, okay, if you're sad, here's what we got for you. We have pleasure. You can come uh, to our resort. You can, you can get on our dating app and, and meet your, your Mr. or Ms. Right. You can, you can have these experiences. Pleasure, that's the world's comp, uh, uh, counterfeit version. Or we have achievement. You know, go to college and earn a degree. Uh, get into a corporation and rise to the top. Uh, achieve these things. And then you will have this sense that you are worth something. Or there's escapism. That's another counterfeit form of joy. Take this pill. Drink this substance. Do something to distract yourself from the sorrow you feel. And then there's fame. And then there's wealth. The world offers all manner of counterfeit versions of joy. But all of them go away. All of them wear off. But real joy, the joy of the Lord, lasts because... God never changes, and God is a joyful God. You may never have thought about it this way. You, you may not think of God as being joyful, but look at Proverbs 8 sometimes, and it describes during the creation of the universe, God was joyful. It's, it, the language in Hebrew, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but those who are tell us it's almost the, the language of someone dancing with joy. If you can't have a hard time picturing God dancing, it's in there. Uh, or Zephaniah says that he will sing to us with joy. He will, he, you ever get so excited about your kids, you just sing them a song. This is God. He will sing over us with joy. God is a joyful God, and therefore, when we're with Him, when we're in Him, we have joy. And now you might say, well, okay, so what if I lack joy? Now, here's, here's where I've changed. I used to tell people, every Christian ought to be a joyful person. If you don't have joy in your heart as a Christian, you need to ask God, to make you joyful. I've changed my mind on that because I think God would say, if, if he spoke out loud to us when we prayed, he'd say, no, I've already given you joy. 
It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's already in you if you're my child. What we need to say instead of, Lord, make me joyful, we need to say, Lord, what am I doing to block my joy? What am I doing to not experience or express the joy you've given me? Is it because I've got somebody that I'm not forgiving? Is it because I, I've, I've got some hatred and bitterness in my heart? Is it, is it because I, I'm, I'm too focused on my fears instead of focusing on you? What is it, Lord? Is it, is it that I'm, I, I'm not spending enough time with you? What do I need to do to experience the joy you've already given me? Ask Him to show you what is in the way. So in verse 23, He says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I like verse 23 when he says, you will ask nothing of me in that day. Because again, when you've been a parent of a toddler, when, when your kids, from the time they learn to speak until about the time they're you know, 12 and they decide you don't know anything anymore, how many questions do they have for you? I mean, an infinite number of questions. And I think about that, and I think about Jesus, and how many times his disciples must have asked him, okay, but Lord, who are you really? Okay, but what did that mean? I heard you say that, but, but what did you mean by that? He says, in that day, meaning resurrection day, you won't have those questions anymore. You'll know who I am. It will become obvious to you. But then he turns around and says, but whatever you ask the Father in my name, you'll get it. He's talking about two different things. He's talking about, you're going to know my identity, but I want to remind you of the power you have to pray in my name once I'm risen. Because after I go to that cross, there's nothing holding you back from going into the presence of the Father. In my name, you have the power to do that. In my name, you have the authority to ask for whatever's on your heart. And remember, we've talked about this before. That's not a magic formula. That doesn't mean that you can pray that all your enemies would die in the name of Jesus and then walk outside and see their dead bodies on the ground, right? It's not that you can pray that you'd be able to fly and then just, just take off running and, and sail off into the sunset. What it means is the name of Jesus is more than just the words J-E-S-U-S. -S. It's the character of Christ. To pray in someone's name means to pray alongside them, to pray in a way that reflects their priorities. When you pray in Jesus' name, you're saying, I want the will of Jesus to be done in this world. And this is what I think Jesus wants done. And when we pray in the name of Jesus, it's going to happen. That's part of why prayer isn't just a way of us getting things done on earth. It's a way of us getting God's will done on earth. It's a way of us discerning God's will and seeing powerful things happen. In verse 25, he says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So when he says, the hour's coming when I won't speak to you in figures of speech, I think he's talking about the parables, right? But I will tell you plainly about the Father. What he's talking about is, Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says that for the 40 days between the time Jesus raised from the dead and the time he ascended into heaven, that's 40 days. 
We only have a handful of stories of what happened during those 40 days. But Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says, during those 40 days, he taught them about the kingdom of God. So I assume that's what Jesus is saying here. When I come back from the grave, I'm not going to give you parables anymore. I'm not going to say things that are confusing anymore. I'm just going to tell you straight out, here's what the Father's like. And there's a part of us that says, wow, I wish that was all written down. And I think it is. I think that's where we get a lot of the stories from the Gospels. There's a lot of stories in the Gospels. There's a lot of facts that you look at and you go, well, how did John know that conversation took place? Or how did Mark know that this happened in that way when he wasn't even there? I think that's part of the story is during those 40 days, Jesus was filling in the gaps. And then when John writes his three letters and when Peter writes his two letters, and even Paul, who wasn't there, he heard from the other disciples. So the New Testament is what came out of those 40 days. And that's exciting. So he says, in that day you'll ask in my name, and, and I'm not going to have to go ask the Father for you. Your word will be enough. Your prayer to the Father will be enough because it's prayed in my name. We have access. And this is why I'm not trying to pick a fight with any other denomination. Because trust me, I fully expect when I get to heaven to find out that Baptists were wrong in a variety of ways, but there is no priest needed in order for our prayers to be effective. And before we get all high and mighty and say amen, how many of you have said, well, you know, I'm praying, but if the preacher was praying, it would really happen. It's not true. Your prayers are as effective as mine. Your prayers are as effective as anybody else's because of Jesus. Because Christianity is not about what you do for God. It's about what He does in you. All right, verse 29. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So I think verse 31, when he says, oh, do you now believe? I think he says that ironically. I think another way of saying, I think it's essentially him saying, oh, so you believe now, huh? Not in, not in a sarcastic, angry way. I think it's a sad way. I think he's saying, you're still a few steps behind me. You think you've got it, but you don't have it yet because I know that in a few hours, you're all going to abandon me. And I know that Jesus wasn't angry about that because of the way he responded after the resurrection. He didn't chastise the disciples when he showed up there in the upper room. We'll talk about this on Easter Sunday. He didn't show up on Easter Sunday and say, what's the matter with you cowards? How dare you still be here? No, he was glad to see them. But now he's telling them, you think you've got it, but you don't. I know what's about to happen. Just like he told Peter in the previous chapter, you think you're going to be with me to the end, but three times you're going to deny me before the rooster crows. So Jesus is telling them, 
These things are going to happen. You're going to abandon me. The sorrow of seeing me die, he doesn't say this, but I think, he's, I think this is the implication. The sorrow of seeing me die is going to be even less painful. It's going to be painful, but what's even more painful is the shame you'll feel at having abandoned me in my moment of need. And yet, he says, I'm telling you all this so you'll know. When you've lost everything, when everything you've placed your hope in is gone, you've got me, and in me you have peace. Because the world can't give you peace. The world can't give you joy, and the world can't give you peace. But I can. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So what is peace when we talk about peace? I know you've heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it again. In, in Hebrew language, the word peace means something more than it, words, than it means in English. When we say peace, we usually mean the end of conflict, or we mean quiet. So I need to, I need to get some peace means, uh, honey, you watch the kids, I'm going to go for a walk. Uh, or I need, I need some peace means I'm going to get away from this person who drives me nuts. Jesus, when he uses the word peace, the word peace in Hebrew is the word shalom, which if you speak Hebrew, that's your word you say to say hello, shalom, shalom. But it's a word that means wholeness. It's a word that means when things are set right. Uh, a broken bone is not shalom, but a, a set bone is shalom. It's when things are put back together again. When you say to someone, shalom, what you're saying is, I hope you prosper in every way. Jesus is promising us that we will have peace. Tim Keller pictures peace this way. He says, you know, think about if someone dug up a hand grenade from World War II, uh, unused, it's just sitting there, still got the pen in it. Would you play with that? Would you let, throw it, toss it around with your friends? Would you let your kids run away with it? Of course not. Because it wouldn't take much for that thing to go off. And if that thing goes off, serious damage happens. But what if somebody who was very good at what they did, came in and defused that little hand grenade. Would you then have a different attitude towards it? Of course. Because then you would know it's safe. No matter what I do to it, if, I, if I'm carrying it and I happen to accidentally drop it, it's not going to do anything. It's not going to cause damage. It's not going to explode because it's been diffused. That's what peace is like. Peace doesn't mean anything about the external changes. Still face the same pressures, the same conflicts, the same trials, the same stresses. It's what happens inside of you. It, it means doesn't mean you don't ever feel fear, you don't ever feel sorrow, but it means you don't explode. You don't go off. It means you're settled in your spirit. Things are set right between you and God. So, so I thought about it this way. Here's what peace is like. Whatever you're afraid of, Jesus says, it's okay, I have overcome. Remember, he says, in this world you'll have tribulation. Interestingly, the word he uses is a word that's usually used for labor pains. In this world you'll have the labor pains, right? This world will bring this pain upon you. But I have overcome. That's a battle word. That's a word that was used for victory in battle. Jesus is saying, I have fought your fight for you. Where did he do that? On the cross. Jesus overcame through the cross in the empty tomb. So think about it with me for a second. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of rejection? 
Jesus isn't promising you'll never be rejected. He's saying, because of the cross, you'll never be rejected by the one who matters most. You'll always be accepted by me, by the Father. Are you afraid you're going to lose something precious? Maybe your bank account's going to go dry. Maybe your possessions will be taken away. Maybe your house will burn down. Are you afraid of that? Well, we have an inheritance laid up for us in heaven that neither moth nor rust can destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. Are you afraid of disappointment? Are you afraid that all your dreams won't come true? Well, hope in God because His hope doesn't disappoint. He always keeps His promises. Are you afraid of grief? That you're going to lose people precious to you. You're going to have to figure out a way to live without them in your life. Well, the good news is He'll wipe away every tear from your eyes. Someday the day is coming when there's a great reunion with people you've lost and with the Father Himself who wipes the tears from your eyes. Grief does not last forever. Are you afraid of failure? That you won't achieve what you hoped and that you'll feel like your life wasn't worthy? That's okay because we're forgiven in Christ. In Christ, the most important thing about us is that we've been forgiven. That's it. And that's true of Billy Graham, and that's true of Mother Teresa, and any other Christian, outstanding Christian you can name. The most important thing about that person was not any of the stuff they did that made them famous. It's they're forgiven. That's peace to know that. Now, maybe a, a really lame way to wrap this up, but uh, I think about uh, last week, start of my vacation, right? Carrie and her sister and I, we've been going to U of H basketball games all year, and they were playing their conference tournament in Fort Worth. For those of you that don't know, don't worry, this is going to be short. But um, if you don't care about sports, this is going to be short. Basically, it's just they played all of the teams in their conference, and one team got crowned the champion. Well, my team didn't win. We made it all the way to the championship game, but didn't win. Um, in fact, we lost to the team I hate the most whose fans are just the worst. And I remember as seconds were ticking down, I was like, I looked at the two ladies and I said, let's get out of here. I don't want to watch these people celebrate. So we got, we left. I was fine. I was fine. You know why? Because that wasn't the end. Because it's just a game. I was fine also because I knew that we were going to drive home that night and the next day my kids were going to be home for the next week. We were going to just be at, be at home together. We were going to go out to eat together. We were going to play games together. It was, In other words, I didn't put all my eggs in, we better win. This is it. This is, this is what life is about. No, that was, a, that was a fun experience. We didn't quite get where we wanted. That's all right. If I'd bet on the game, I'd be sad. My sadness would be inconsolable. <laughs> But I bet on other things. I bet on my family. I bet on the Lord. I bet on Sabbath, right? Those things delivered. By the way, uh, the big tournament started the next weekend, and that other team lost in the first round. So there you go. But that's beside the point. <laughs> that brought me some very unchristian joy. Um, my joy was in bigger things, and that's my point. Your joy and your peace better come from Jesus and not from anything else because anything else will let you down. Anything else will let you down, but He will not. This world can only offer so many things, but Jesus can offer joy and peace. And those things are, well, you can't live without them. 
not for long. So, good news for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today and for your presence and your promises of joy and peace. And Lord, where we're not experiencing those, help us to see why. Lord, let us not just say, well, I'm just not a very happy person by nature, or let us not just say, Lord, I'm just, I'm just a, a touchy, uh, sensitive person, but instead help us to ask you and to find through the power of your Holy Spirit where we're missing the joy and the peace you've given us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, for those who struggle with mental health, and I know there's, there's, they're all around us, and maybe even some in this room, help them not to feel less Help them to see, Lord, that they matter just as much to you. And I pray that they would find the help they need through you to overcome and help us to love them as we should. Lord, I pray that we would love all those around us as you give us opportunity. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.